this afternoon we're going to continue uh, looking at uh, the book of the prophet of Malachi. Uh, and um, for those of you who are here this morning, we looked uh, at um, some of the book uh, this morning. Uh, but this is, uh, this is really the fourth section of uh, the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is broken down into six uh, main sections. Each one of them, uh, God says to his people, you have said this. Or I'm making a statement to you and then God's responding. Or the people have made a statement to God and then God's responding. And uh, this is particularly important because this is um, basically the last thing, the last things that God would say uh, before going silent for 400 years. Um, The the, uh, book of Malachi, it was written after the exile. Uh, of uh, the Israelites. They'd uh, had their country as we've been going through uh, Kid Zone in the morning. They had their judges, they had their kings, um, and now uh, they um, had been into exile because God had told them, you need to walk in obedience to me and I'll bless you, but if you walk in disobedience to me, then I'll discipline you. And the people time and time again didn't listen to God, so God sent them off into exile. And normally as a people group, if a whole people group got taken off uh, to another country, they'd get absorbed into the surrounding culture. Um, But God's promise to them was, after 70 years, I'll bring you back into the land. And that's exactly what God did. Um, He helped them, he rebuilt their lives, he rebuilt their families, he helped them to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Uh, He helped them even though they were discouraged, he helped them to rebuild build the temple and in doing so he showed that he loved them that he loved them that he was for them that he he could have turned his back on them he could have turned his back and said no you've gone too far I'm gonna have nothing to do with you but he didn't he said I love you I've rebuilt you I've restored you I love you but then he goes on because the people are they're complaining against God and God's saying that no the the issue isn't with me how many of you have ever had those conversations where you're like God there's an issue between us and uh, God's standing there going uh, well really there's more of an issue with you than there is with me because God's perfect there's never an issue with God and uh, that's what he's showing to his people that no I I'm not at fault here I've loved you perfectly. The issue is, why don't you love me? And he goes through it because the first and greatest commandment that the Lord has given is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he starts off there and he goes through and he says, you need to love me, you need to honor me. And then as we looked at this morning, he goes on because the second commandment, which is like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes and he says, not only do you need to love and honor me, but you also need to be loving your spouse in the right way. And that's what we looked at this morning. Um, And then he goes on uh, in this section and, well, let's read it and uh, then we'll... um, then we'll spend some time unpacking it. So if you turn with me, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you uh, to open them up. If you turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 17. Malachi chapter 2, starting with verse 17, and then we're going to read down. Uh, to chapter 3, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. 
then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> so, in this, so it, this section, it begins with, if you actually think uh, about it, it begins with quite a strange statement. He begins and he says, you have wearied the Lord. It's like, God, I thought you didn't get tired. Because, you know, if we go back to the beginning, when God made everything, it says, six days he made the world, and on the seventh day he rested. But then um, Jesus unpacks it, and he comes along and he says, no, the rest, it wasn't, God wasn't resting for the sake of himself. God was resting for you as a pattern for you so that you would find rest. Because the Sabbath, uh, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. So God isn't saying he's actually like physically getting tired. Here, I mean, if you turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 28, God says he neither faints nor is weary. So God isn't saying in this that he actually like physically gets tired. So he's not saying because you're talking to me, I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. I need to go and have a lie down. That's not what God is saying. God doesn't physically get tired. But if you would continue on in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 43, verse 24, he does say one thing that does weary him. He says, you've wearied me with your iniquities. He says that hearing of your sin and seeing your sin He gets tired of that. So when he's saying that you've wearied the Lord, he's not saying that you're talking to him so much. Maybe, you know, if you're a grandparent, you know, or to be honest, even if you're a parent, you know, you have your children and they're running around so much and then they go to bed and you're like, oh, that was hard work. And you're you're tired by their activity. But if you think back to COVID, and you know there was all the things on the news about there was this statistic and this statistic and there'd be this message from the health minister and this message from the prime minister. And did you just get tired of hearing it? Yeah. That's what God's saying here. It's not saying he's getting physically tired. He's saying he's getting tired of hearing it. What is he getting tired of hearing? <clears throat> he says... Um, the thing, that he, the thing that is weary in him, in verse 17, he says, you've wearied the Lord with your words, and yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? Um, just to pause there. Um, God said the, um, the, um, he was being wearied by the words of the people, and the people were like, nah If God says something, the best thing to do is to agree with him straight away, because then you can go on from there. God doesn't need to prove himself. We agree with God, and we go on with him. But um, they, they said, in what way have we wearied him? He said that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And then he also says, the other thing that they said was, where is the God of justice? So kind of to summarize these two statements, they're saying that God loves evil. Because that's what they said, and they said this is what they were saying. They were saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. So they're turning around to God, and they're saying, God, you like evil things. You like, not only do you like evil things, but you actually find joy in what is evil. The Bible tells us that they'll come, and it's happening in this day, that people will take what is good and call it evil, and people will take what is evil and call it good. But the people are turning around to God and saying, God, that's what you're doing. But it's almost even worse because people, people can be deceived. 
God cannot be deceived. So they're saying, God, you knowing everything perfectly, you seeing everything for exactly what it is. When God sees something and he knows it's evil, it is evil. God is never deceived. But they're saying that, God, you seeing something that's evil, you'll find enjoy in it. They're accusing God of finding joy in what is evil. And then on the other side, there's people in their camp turning around and saying, where is the God of justice? So on one side, you have people who are saying, God, you don't really care about evil because you find joy in it. And then on the other side, there's people who are turning around and saying, God, I don't get it. There's so much evil in this world. Where are you? If you're so good and there's so much evil, then where are you? Sound similar to today? Both of those questions. God, what you say is good is actually evil and you'll find enjoy in it. On the other side, God, I'm defining things as evil and I'm seeing all these wrong things and yet where, where are you in the midst of it? And this continual accusation against God. God's turning around and he's saying, I'm tired of hearing it. So here's my response. Now, apparently, um, God only likes saying big subjects through Malachi. Um, because first of all, he dealt with our heart towards loving God. Secondly, he dealt with our heart towards loving our spouses. And now he's dealing with the problem of evil, which people have been debating back and forth for years and years and years and years and years. But when God speaks on a subject, that's the definitive word on the subject. When God turns around and he says, I know you guys are debating about this, but this is what I have to say about it then you can trust what God says about it. Because sometimes maybe you're in a conversation and you know, like I guess this happened a lot more before the days of Google, um, but people would be debating back and forth about a point you know, um, and people would be discussing it and this person would be weighing in and this person would be weighing in and people would be having a conversation about it, trying to come to the conclusion as to what's the best thing to do. If you want an example, How many times have you sat around trying to decide what film to watch, and by the time you've decided what film to watch, you you don't want to watch a film anymore because you're like tired and you want to go to bed. But then, let's say then the biggest expert, maybe the person who runs the Oscars, comes to you and says, this is the film you should watch. You'd be like, okay, I've never heard of it, but I'll give it a go because there is an authority on the situation coming in and telling you what you should do. People debate back and forth. God, you seem to be finding joy in evil because the situation isn't getting any better. On the other side, God, clearly you don't care about evil because nothing's happening. It's not being dealt with. This is God's answer to those two questions. This is God's answer to the problem of evil. This is perhaps one of the reasons why people should read the Minor Prophets because God deals with it right there, right here in this passage. Um, But this is what God says. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's God's answer to the problem of evil. He begins, and uh, that verse, maybe maybe you'll recognize in that verse, but you're like, I don't quite know where I recognize it from, where it says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. That's speaking about John the Baptist. That, that was the ministry of John the Baptist. If you, uh, if you were to turn to uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 76, that is the ministry of John the Baptist. He was the one who was going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. 
um, in, yep, yeah, uh, thank you, Sinead, for pulling that one on the screen. Um, he says, and you, child, this is Zachariah, John's father, speaking over him. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. In, uh, if you carried on in Luke, in uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 27, um, it says uh, the same thing again about this is John's ministry. This is a problem of evil on one side. God, why aren't you doing anything about it? On the other side, God, where are you in the midst of it? This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will, uh, who will prepare your way before you. That the beginning of God's answer to the problem of evil was to send John the Baptist. But when we talk about John the Baptist, we don't often stay at John the Baptist because all he was doing was preparing the way. Who was he preparing the way for? He was preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, John, as he was baptizing people, as, uh, as, um, it was a baptism of repentance. It's a little bit different uh, than the baptism we do now. That's why we get baptized after we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not before. Um, but as John was baptizing people, he saw Jesus walking towards him and he pointed at him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, he was a part of the answer, but all he was doing was preparing the way before me. That's exactly what it says there in Malachi. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's what John did. He prepared the way for Jesus to come. Many people, their hearts were stirred up. They were getting ready for the coming of, uh, of the Messiah. If you watch The Chosen, you know that Andrew, he was originally a disciple of John the Baptist. And then when Jesus came on the scene, he was like, this is the one who I've been waiting for. And then he goes and he gets his brother Peter and so many of those that John, he was preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. But after John, after John came the true master. After John came the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read uh, in it, he says, so the, he's um, God, he's presenting these two questions. People are saying to him, God, you love evil. God, you delight in what is evil. On the other side, people are saying to him, God, why aren't you doing anything about it? And God turns around and not, he doesn't just send a prophet, he sends himself. God's answer to the problem of evil is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to the problem of evil. And we'll get on in a moment to how uh, he does that, to how he solves it. What he does about solving the evil in this world like he jesus is the answer but how is the how is he the answer but as jesus is coming as he says he'll suddenly come into his temple even the messenger of the covenant and as as malachi speaking these things he's drawing on so many old testament pictures so you had moses who on mount sinai he he brought down uh, the the covenant uh, that had been made with god on mount sinai and then he's pointing us forward toward or from their point of view he's pointing them forward towards when jesus on the mountain of Calvary would bring down the covenant that was made in his blood. That Jesus, he's more than just another messenger. John, he's called the greatest of the prophets in the, in the old covenant. He says, um, Jesus himself said, there's no one greater born among women than John the Baptist. John was the greatest prophet under the old covenant. But then in this passage, Jesus is given a title above John. So you have, you know, you have all the other prophets, you have Isaiah, you have Jeremiah, you have Ezekiel, you have all the other prophets. And then Jesus says, John is the greatest. Yeah. 
even greater than Moses. He's the greatest. And he's just called, he's called the messenger who will prepare the way. And then God says in this passage in Malachi, now I'm coming as a messenger of the covenant that God gives the Lord Jesus Christ a title above the greatest of the prophets. Jesus is not just another messenger from God. That's the doctrine of demons. Jesus is greater than the greatest of the prophets. Even as, um, even if God is responding to the people here, you notice the, the way he's, he's talking. He says, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So as God is speaking, he's presenting to them that my answer to the problem of evil is not just another messenger. My answer to the problem of evil is me. I'm coming. Not one who would represent God. Not one who would speak on God's behalf. Not one who would be God's mouthpiece. But God himself would come as the answer to the problem of evil. And he says... And we'll get back to this later, but I do find it interesting, and I'll point out why later. But he says, behold, he is coming. So for those who Malachi was speaking to, it would be another 500 years, give or take, before Jesus would be coming into the temple. Another 500 years. But he says to them, behold, he is coming. You can have faith, you can have expectation, you can find joy that this messenger of the covenant, who is God himself, he is coming. That's a glorious thing, that he is coming. And he says that in whom you delight. So God coming, it's a wonderful thing. It's a joyful thing that these people, they've been um, you know, wondering for years and years and years, God, what are you going to do about evil? God, what are you going to do to fix this mess? Which wasn't God's mess in the first place. But as they were looking to God saying, God, this is a mess. Evil is destroying things. What are you going to do about it? And he says, I'm coming. You can delight in that. I am coming. And when we think of Jesus' coming, I mean, when we think of Christmas time, it's joyful, it's tranquil, children wearing tea towels on their heads. It's, it's wonderful, isn't it? You have the angels in the sky singing that this is the Messiah. He's come. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's lying in a feeding trough, but he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's here. It's a wonderful, joyful, peaceful thing, isn't it? Peace on earth with whom God is pleased. It's an amazing, wonderful, restoring thing, isn't it? I feel like people know that I'm like setting them up. Um, but then in verse 3... He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? The coming of Jesus is a delightful thing. It is a delightful thing. But it also changed everything. It changed everything. There's no record in the old, on, just on, on a miracle basis, there's no record that I know of, I don't know if you know of any past way, um, no record anywhere in the Old Testament of a demon being cast out. Jesus comes along. Not only does he do it, but he gives his followers the power to do it. In the Old Testament, there's only one account of a blind person having their sight restored. Jesus comes along in his ministry alone, happens nine times. From the law, the, the Pharisees, you know, they, they, they were holding, trying to hold rigidly to the laws that God had given. And they were adding things so you didn't go anywhere near that law in the hope that maybe if you do all these good things, then you'll be acceptable in God's sight. 
People still do that today, don't they? That maybe if I follow all of these things, then I'll be acceptable in God's sight. Jesus comes along and he both manages to raise the bar of the law because, for example, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And he says, but I tell you, if you're angry at your brother without cause, then you've committed murder in your heart. So he raises the standard of the law and yet also extends grace as the only way to the Father through him. The coming of Jesus changed everything. He says, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Two main things that Jesus does when he comes. Two main things that changed everything. And with these two things, he answers the problem of evil. I will purify my people and I will judge the wicked. I will purify my people and I will judge the wicked. Because evil has to go. Evil cannot remain. If you were to read the book of Revelation, um, it says that nothing unclean, nothing unclean is allowed into the new Jerusalem. Evil has to go. But God doesn't deal with his people with the same hand that he deals with the wicked. He says, I'll purify my people and I will judge the wicked. Here as he's, as he's talking to, um, as he's dealing with his people, as he's saying, I'm going to purify them, I'm going to refine them. In verse three, he says, I will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Now, I don't know if you know much about purifying silver. Um, I don't, um, because I don't make jewelry. Um, but when you purify a metal, when you're refining it, what you're doing is you're, because you're trying to get out all the impurities so it shines the best it can. That is what refining and purifying a metal does. So you'd take, let's say, a lump of silver or a lump of gold. He uses both as examples. You'd take it, you'd put it in the furnace, you'd turn up the heat, and then as the heat is applied to it, that which is impure and that which is pure is separated. And then if you're making jewelry, then you can take the pure silver, you can take the pure gold, palladium if you're a fancy, um, you can take that pure metal and you can use it to make more beautiful and more expensive jewelry than you could before. That's what carrots are. Um, not like, you know, carrots, um, but like carrots of like gold. It, 24 carat gold is pure gold, it's the most valuable. Uh, you know, 18 karat gold, 9 karat gold, like it, it shows how impure it is. And God wants 24 karat people. That's his goal. That's what Paul says. That's, that his goal is to present every man perfect before Christ. Because the bride of Christ is to be without spot, wrinkle, and blemish. And it's not using the right creams. That's not going to do anything for you. I mean, it, maybe it will physically, but not spiritually. I don't know. I don't want don't to enter that argument. Um, but God's goal is to present you spiritually without spot, wrinkle, and blemish. And the only cream he offers you for that is his refining power. That's what he says he wants to do. 
That's, well, not what he wants to do. That's what he says he will do. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Now, Jesus, he's not going to be sitting by a furnace making rings. Um, you know, you're not going to have, you know, J. Christ um, Jewelry Company. Um, he says, I'm going to purify the sons of Levi. I'm going to purify my priests. I'm going to purify those who represent me to the world. So all that impurity is removed. That's what he is doing in you. He's purifying you. He's purifying your mind that you don't think the same way you used to when you weren't a believer. You think differently. Those things that come into your head that you're like, God, I don't want that anymore. It's not right. By the way, just because a thought is in your head doesn't mean you've sinned. Because not all thoughts in your head are from you. That's why we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. We weigh it, and if it doesn't belong, we discard it. And we put our minds, set our minds on things that are above, things that are pure, things that are good, things that are holy. He's purifying your mind. He's purifying the way you think. So whereas before, driving down the road, not that I imagine any of you ever attempted with road rage, um, but you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off and you're running late to work because, you know, like you, 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 you got up late and then somebody else was in the shower and so you're running late to work, you're totally stressed out. Somebody else cuts you up in the road and then whereas before you would have, you know, got out of the car, ripped off their windscreen wipers, now you don't think that way anymore. Because he's purifying the way you think. He's purifying what you do. He's purifying how you spend your time and how you spend your money. And often all those three are linked, aren't they? What we do with our money is how we spend our time, which is how we act. He's purifying that, where money is no longer your master. Money doesn't have hold on you anymore. And for the priests, money was never to have hold on them anyway. Because God said, by what comes into the temple, I'll supply for you. So they didn't have to worry. They didn't have to let it rule over them. It wasn't their master. God was their master. God was their inheritance. He's purifying you. Why is he purifying you? He says at the end of verse 3, he says that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. He doesn't say that they may offer to the Lord a righteous offering, which is how I first read it. He doesn't say so they may offer to the Lord a righteous offering. He says, so that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. That they, being righteous, would bring to the Lord an offering. That's what the Lord has for you. But whereas, if you think about it, like in their day, there were very real offerings, very real sacrifices that these purified priests would have to bring. That's kind of, if you were here in the morning, we dealt with some of that this morning. That, that was the job of the priest. That was the purpose of the priest, was to bring the offerings and bring the prayers. They had very real offerings that they had to bring to God. Five main offerings, and then numerous other offerings as well. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, the wave offering. There were loads and loads. You can read all about them in Leviticus if you want to have fun with that. Um, that was their job for us. There are no offerings that need to be offered for righteousness. Amen. Jesus is the once and for all great offering and sacrifice. He's your burnt offering. He's your sin offering. He's your offering on the Day of Atonement for all the things that you didn't even know that you did that were wrong. He paid for it all. Amen. He's your peace offering. That's, that's the that's the. Wonderful news of Christmas, that peace from heaven to earth in Jesus Christ. Jesus is that once and for all great offering 
for your sin, for your life, for your righteousness. Jesus did it all. Amen? So what offering are you to bring? What offering can you bring? God has made us a nation of kings and priests. And he says that the purified sons of Levi, who, those who were the priests, the temple helpers, the reason he's purified them is so that they could bring an offering to the Lord in righteousness. I don't think God's purposes have changed. I don't think now he's sitting there going, well, now you're purified for honestly no reason other than to be purified for purification's sake. He hasn't changed his purpose. His purpose is for you. Having been purified, be made a pure, purified son of Levi, that you may bring an offering to the Lord in righteousness. There's only one offering that you can bring. If you would turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We can just read verse 1. That's the offering that you can bring to him. There is a difference between offerings and sacrifices, but they can also be used interchangeably. That's the offering that he wants you to bring. There's no offering for sin. There's no offering for righteousness. There's no offering for peace. All of that has been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ if your trust is in him and only if your trust is in him. So as a purified son of Levi, present yourself to him as a living sacrifice. Let you, your life, be the offering to him. You haven't been made righteous. Get to represent yourself to God. That he made you, he redeemed you, and now you're giving yourself to him as an offering to be used by him. Who knows what he'll use you for? But present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, as that righteous offering, holy, acceptable to him. That's your reasonable worship. That's your reasonable service. Present yourself to God that you, as a purified one, you become the offering that once, you, it's like once you've given an offering, it's, it's over to the person who you gave it to to use it, right? Yeah. So if I would use it as, a, as an example, um, you know, when the offering basket's going around and you put your money in there, you don't also put a note in there saying how you want it to be used. That, by the way, I really think we should, I'm just using this as an example, just so it's very, very clear. Um, you know, by the way, um, here, here's my money, here's my tithe, here's my offering, can we buy some different coffee beans? You don't do that. <laughs> Once the offering's been given, it's over to the one who it's given to to determine how it's used. So give yourself to God as a righteous offering, as a living sacrifice, and it's over to him to determine how you're going to be used but he'll use you for your glory. For, for your glory? He'll use you for his glory. He'll use you to lift up his name. He'll use you that the world would see that there is a God and his name is Jesus Christ. And he'll keep you. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. But present yourself to him as a living sacrifice, as a righteous offering. That's, the, that's his first answer to evil. Because it deals in our own lives, in our own hearts, with any, anything that isn't right. 
because he's purifying you. He's removing all the things that don't belong and making sure that everything that does need to be there is there. He's dealt with the, he's dealt with the issue of evil in your life. He's dealt with the issue of evil in the lives of all of those who would love and trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ because he paid for the sin, he removed their sin, he made them righteous, and he's purified them. The problem of sin is dealt with in God's people by the Lord Jesus Christ, by his coming, by his death upon the cross, by his resurrection. He'd purify his people and he'd judge the wicked. That's what he says in verse five. He says, I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me. There's two types of people in the world. Those who fear God and respond to the Lord Jesus Christ and those who do not fear God and continue in wickedness. To those who respond to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will deal with the problem of evil by purifying you. To those who do not respond to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will deal with the problem of evil by judging you. And he highlights some specific things that he says he will judge. He says he will judge sorcerers. So witches, witchcraft, that those things that, that as we're looking to take ground in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, and you come against witchcraft, you come against the occult, God says he will judge those things. He will deal with them in answering the problem of evil. God says he will judge adulterers. As we looked at this morning, those who, um, th that they're betraying their spouses, that they're breaking covenant, God will judge those. That against perjurers, those who lie and misrepresent, God will judge those. Because one of, one of the things God says he actually hates is he says he hates a lying tongue. So for us as believers, we're not to be those who lie and misrepresent, but we're to be those who speak truth in love. Because you can sometimes you can speak truth and not do it in a very loving way. Jesus says, speak truth in love. And so much more when you're under oath, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, that you're not to be a perjurer, you're not to lie and misrepresent under oath. God says he will judge perjurers against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans. One of the main, and I know it's not so common today because of you know, direct debits and all that, but for the longest time, a lot of people got paid daily. So, you would, um, you know, you'd do your day's work and then you'd go to your boss and um, during the Roman Empire, they'd be given a denarii, which is, you read about the denarii a lot. That's literally the amount of money a standard day laborer would get in the Roman times. It would be so easy for those bosses to hold back that money and to take advantage of their workers. For widows um, in the Roman Empire, um, the day that um, Jesus lived, um, widows could not hold property. And chances are they couldn't work either. Orphans, they had no parents. They had nobody to take care of them. God cares about the vulnerable. Like he really cares about the vulnerable. Even the next one, when he says, uh, um, against those who turn away aliens, like, he's not talking about Martians. Um, God doesn't have a problem, you know, with like little green or little gray people. Um, he's talking about aliens in the sense of foreigners, people who are from a different land, and often those who come in vulnerability. Not saying you going on your holiday to Malaga, but when you're coming and you're destitute and you have nothing, God says he cares about those people those vulnerable ones, the, the day laborers, those who, if you don't give them their money at the end of the day, they're not gonna be able to buy anything to eat. The widows, those who have uh, no protection, those who have nobody to take care of them, the orphans, those who have no parents to shelter them and to love them, the foreigners, those who have nowhere to live. 
God says he cares about the vulnerable. So if you're in a vulnerable place, maybe you've told people, maybe you haven't. God specifically says he sees you. And more than that, he specifically says he'll judge those if they abuse you. So you have the God of the universe, the King of Kings, your heavenly Father who is very, very purposefully watching your back. He'll take care of you. He says he'll purify his people. He will. He'll deal with the problem of sin by redeeming you by the blood of the Lamb, by giving you his resurrection life, and by purifying you, removing all the things that don't belong and making sure what needs to be there is there. He deals with the problem of sin in his people by purifying them. And then to the world, those who do not fear him, those who will not bow the knee to him, he says he'll deal with the problem of sin by judging them. Specifically, by judging sorcerers, those involved like the occult, witchcraft, judging adulterers, those who break covenant, judging, uh, judging perjurers, those who lie and misrepresent whilst under oath by judging those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and foreigners, those who take advantage of the vulnerable. That's how God deals with the problem of evil. He purifies and he judges. But where does this leave us? This book was written 2000, like specifically Malachi, was written 2,500 years ago. It was written before Jesus came. And everything changed when Jesus came. Where does this leave us today? I want to go back to that phrase in chapter 3, verse 1, <clears throat> where he says, Behold, he is coming. For them, they looked forward to that day where the angels appeared in the sky above the shepherd's field and said, today a savior has been born in Bethlehem. They looked forward to that day because with the coming of that baby boy who would grow up and enter the temple, everything changed. He came as the purifier and as the judge. And for us, we get to look back on that day we get to look back on the life of Jesus where he lived that perfect life, where he died upon the cross, where he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. And we get to say the problem of sin <clears throat> was dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. Amen? Amen? But we look around and there's still evil things happening in this world. There's still evil things happening in this neighborhood. There may well be evil things happening in your life, even right now. Jesus, didn't you said you were coming? Didn't that change everything? Yes, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ did change everything because he, he directed them that their hope was, behold, he is coming. That's where your hope is. He is coming and he has come. And we have hope in that he has already come. But I want to take you to the very end of the Bible as we close. If you turn to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. He says, behold, I am coming. He has come. He has dealt with sin. He has come to purify his people. He has come as judge. He has already come and we look back to him and rejoice that he has come. We look back and find joy and delight that he has come. But those things that you look around at and you're like, God, why? Why is this still happening? Why does this still go on? Behold, he is coming. And when he comes this time, 
when he comes this time, everything will be made new. The world, those who've put their trust in him, they'll live with him on the new earth. Those who haven't, there'll be that final judgment, not judgment in this life and room for repentance. There'll be that final judgment into the lake of fire. Jesus has dealt with the problem of evil by coming himself. And Jesus will finally conclude to dealing with the problem of evil when he comes again. So find hope, find joy in that he has already come and find hope and find joy that he is coming again. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that seeing you and being with you is a delight. You are our delight. And we delight in you this afternoon. Thank you that you, Lord, you didn't just send another messenger. You didn't just send another person to tell us about your solution. But, Lord Jesus, you yourself came. You yourself came to deal with the problem of evil. You showed that you cared. That you came to purify us. And, Lord, we pray that you'd continue that purifying work. And Lord, that our lives would be lived out as those righteous offerings, those living sacrifices that are acceptable and pleasing to you. Lord Jesus, that you would use us for your glory. And Lord, we pray that many, 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 even in this community, in our families, in our friendship groups, that they would come, Lord, that they would come and trust in you and be purified by you and be made acceptable in your sight. But Lord, we also pray And Lord, we thank you that you are coming in judgment. That you will not leave any stone unturned. But Lord, you you will deal with evil once and for all when you come again. And Lord, that is our delight too. Lord, that you have not forgotten. Lord, you do not delight in evil. Lord, you have not turned your back on this world or on us as your people. But Lord, you are the purifier and the judge. And Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you want prayer for anything, there'll be the ministry team up who would love to stand with you in faith and pray with you. Amen.